Computer, initialize Holosuite. Hi everyone, welcome to another exciting and thought-provoking episode of the Sci-Fi Feminist Podcast. Today I will be talking about another one of my favorite cyborgs, and she also happens to be a Star Trek cyborg. It is the infamous and awesome Borg Queen. Today I'll be talking a little bit about the Borg's background, how the Borg Queen is an empowering model for women, and what aspects about her representation is problematic. And also I'll be talking a little bit about the idea of embodiment and disembodiment for the Borg Queen, like I have been exploring in Ghost of the Shell for the previous two episodes. So thank you for again for listening to this podcast and for your continued support. And once again, I hope that you enjoy the discussion today. So without further ado, let me get into the discussion of the Borg Queen. Now, the Borg. Let me first give some background for those unfamiliar with Star Trek and the Borg. Actually, the first time I was introduced to the Borg was not in Star Trek. Um, there is this very interesting um, EBM band. They are called Velvet Acid Christ. And they have this song called Futile. And um, basically what they do in the song is... They take the, the Borg noises, so <laughs> Borg noises, um, so the things the Borg say, like oh, resistance is futile, and they have a part of Locutus's speech too, where he says, I am Locutus of Borg, resistance is futile. Actually, that is in the song, um, so maybe you should go and look at the song. I, I like it because it's very... Uh, techno and really cool so actually I I heard that song and I liked the song and then I googled where does resistance is futile come from and then Google said oh it's the Borg from Star Trek and I was like oh okay I think it's time for me to watch Star Trek and to get introduced to the Borg so actually I was doing research on Star Trek Voyager for my PhD too. And then um, when Seven of Nine gets introduced, um, obviously I became much more familiar with the Borg. And uh, the Borg and the Borg Queen especially plays a much bigger role in Star Trek Voyager after about season five onwards. And of course I watched Star Trek First Contact and um, there I met the Borg Queen as well. So I was so fascinated by the Borg from that time onwards, and I think they've become such a deep part of popular culture. When you say resistance is futile, everyone kind of knows what you're talking about. Even if they don't know it's from Star Trek, they know that that phrase, resistance is futile. So yes, that is just <laughs> a brief in uh, introduction of my introduction to the Borg. But for those unfamiliar, the Borg are a cybernetically enhanced and technologically superior species that does not destroy their enemies, but rather assimilates them. Yeah, the assimilation process is quite horrific. I've always been kind of freaked out by that, where the Borg drones, they have these uh, tentacles that kind of come out of their 
hands and then it goes into the victim's neck and then they insert Borg nanoprobes into the victim's neck and then uh, they gradually start growing these technological um, like uh, uh, extra parts <laughs> like their hands become like uh, chainsaws and things so it's quite uh, scary I always thought it would be horrific if I was ever assimilated but the Borg adds to their victims biological and technological distinctiveness to the Borg's own by turning them into Borg drones and that is their kind of famous thing. Your biological and technological distinctiveness will be added to our own. <laughs> it's uh, very horrifying. <laughs> so the Borg also have a hive structure with a shared consciousness, and it is called the collective. So instead of existing as individuals, they exist as a collective that can constantly hear each other's thoughts. And I find it interesting that for American society that is so individualized that this is the most horrific thing ever is for everyone to be the same, for everyone to be a drone and to have the same consciousness. It's interesting how the Borg also really encapsulate or embody a lot of our fears about humanity too. Um, somehow the most horrific thing ever is not to be able to be an individual, which I find quite interesting about the Borg. So in the Voyager episode Scorpion, Captain Janeway reads other captains' description of the Borg, and I find this quite uh, funny or interesting. So according to Captain Picard, and I quote, In their collective state, the Borg are utterly without mercy, driven by one will alone, the will to conquer. And then Janeway continues, she says, According to Captain Amosov of the USS Endeavour, I quote, the Borg are as close to pure evil as any race the Federation has ever encountered. <laughs> okay, so they are like the worst bad guys ever because they take away your individuality and make you into this cyborg that only serves the collective. And um, it's quite interesting. There's a lot of memes about that. But Captain Janeway seems to not be scared of the Borg at all. <laughs> she continually... Um, taunts the queen, the Borg queen. She continually tries to uh, steal things from the Borg ships. Uh, she's so, I, I must say that one, that's one aspect of Captain Janeway. She's quite reckless. I would never, <laughs> ever, um, be so comfortable with just, um, kind of antagonizing the Borg as much as Captain Janeway does. But I guess that's why I love her too. Um, so when was the Borg queen introduced? Actually, she hasn't always been there. Throughout the, the the Star Trek series, The Next Generation, there was no Borg Queen. But then later, the Borg were confirmed to have a ruler that governs all their movements. Um, and that was the Borg Queen. She kind of acts as the Queen Bee or the head of the collective. And she was first introduced in the Star Trek film, Star Trek First Contact. So it's quite interesting Um that they seem to be without a leader for the entire next generation. And then in first contact, they introduce this leader and the leader of the Borg is not a man, but it is a woman. And supposedly the only female Borg drone, and I'll talk about that later, um, because <laughs> most other Borg, uh, even though they are supposedly male and females that have been assimilated. They're all played by male actors. So the Borg itself, they're quite masculine. Their voice too, uh, when, when 
you encounter a Borg ship and they say uh, resistance is futile, it's male voices speaking. So it was quite interesting that these Borg, that even though they are male and female, they are more constructed as male, that they've been given a female ruler. And then she also appears throughout Star Trek Voyager, which is set after the events of Star Trek First Contact. And uh, the Borg Queen and Captain Janeway are always trying to one-up each other. <laughs> I find their relationship quite interesting. There's that one scene where the Borg Queen, there's something that goes wrong in the collective again. And then she just sees on the screen and Captain Janeway is there with her phaser rifle. And she says, Janeway, <laughs> like, ah, Janeway, you're getting in my way again. It's like Captain Janeway have this, has this thing with the Borg, <laughs> which is quite interesting. I really love their, their relationship. Okay. But what's interesting about the Borg Queen, she's unlike the other Borg drones that have cybernetic implants and extensions all over their organic bodies. Rather, and I think this was even more freaky and horrifying, the Borg Queen's head and spine detach from her mechanical body. And it's reattached only when she makes her occasional ceremonial appearance. So she doesn't really um, live with the other Borg on the ship. She appears every now and then when something big happens, like Captain Janeway um, <laughs> tries to destroy the Borg. Um, and then her, her head and spine detach. That is so freaky. <laughs> and then it's put on this very sexy, or maybe not sexy, but very feminine female body, which is quite interesting and which is what I will talk about. Um, a bit more in today's episode too. Okay, so the first thing, what makes the Borg Queen empowering then? Well, firstly, is that the fact that billions of Borg drones submit to her authority and she can control their movements with a single thought. Um, I think that's pretty empowering. Uh, she She's the ruler, she's the queen. According to a theorist, her name is Mia Consalvo, she says, even though the Borg have been constructed as a genderless race, supposedly, all Borg drones were always played by male actors. So the Borg also display masculine characteristics and they are described as being cold and logical. They're also technically competent and their sole quest is technological advancement. And also male pronouns are used to refer to the Borg. And even if we look at the descriptions of the Borg that are recited by Captain Janeway, it also suggests a more masculine demeanor. So the fact that a single woman brings order to this chaos, uh, that is what the Borg Queen describes her functions as. She says, I bring order to chaos. <laughs> Captain Janeway is like, but what do you actually do? <laughs> She's like, I bring order to chaos. Um, so this not only puts a woman in the seat of authority over billions of men, and I put that in quotation marks because they're not really all men, <laughs> but this also counters traditional beliefs that women are illogical and irrational. Um, actually, the Borg Queen, she is the instigator of the logic and the rationality that governs the collective and the systematic nature of the collective. She's the one that organized all of that, which is quite empowering. So in this way, the false dichotomies between man and woman, order and chaos, and nature and technology, they're all dissolved in the figure of the Borg Queen. 
Okay, and even more significantly, and I explained this about Seven of Nine too in a previous episode that you can go check out if you are interested in this line of reasoning. But as a female cyborg, the Borg Queen also questions the apparent opposition between women and technology. So according to Mia Consalvo again, she says the Borg forced us to question many dualisms as Donna Haraway claimed cyborgs might or should. So just as a side note, Donna Haraway in 1991 is a feminist theorist who, who wrote something called the Cyborg Manifesto. And she theorized all about how the idea of female cyborgs are empowering for women. So you can go read that text. It's quite a difficult read. After maybe 10 times of reading it, I still don't really know what she's saying. <laughs> but um, one thing that she does say is that the cyborg, female cyborg, forces us to question many dualisms. And this is mainly visible in the Borg Queen's hybridity of nature and culture. So nature being women and culture being technology. Then another theorist says that the Borg, they do not adapt by con conquering nature and technology, but they rather reclaim women's leadership as creators of technoculture that do not need to subordinate nature through undermining the hierarchy of technological environments that place men in a privileged position vis-a-vis -vis nature and women. Okay, so to, to rephrase that or paraphrase that, basically what this theorist says is that what makes the Borg Queen empowering is not that she conquers nature like men apparently do, but she finds a, syn a synthesis between nature and technology, which is much more sustainable, of course, and um, much more um, significant and meaningful, and which is better, I guess, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Um, so in this way, the Borg Queen does not only destabilize the belief that women and technology are incompatible, because she is the leader of what is perhaps the most technologically advanced society in Star Trek, but she also creates a symbiotic relationship between technology and nature, which is something that patriarchy has arguably failed to do. For example, when an organic life form is assimilated by the Borg, it retains its organic body and it's only augmented with technology. It's not um, taken over by technology, the organic body still exists. And um, a Borg drone, it ceases to function should either its organic or technological parts be damaged. So here we see the synthesis of nature. Um, you know, the technology is as important as the organic body uh, for a Borg drone. If either fails, then the, the drone ceases to function. So that's... That these are the things that, that make the Borg Queen, first of all, very interesting, but also possibly empowering for women or a, an empowering uh, role model for women. Right, but as is always the case, um, <laughs> there's always a good side and a bad side. There are many parts of the Borg Queen or many things about her that are also quite problematic. So... 
the first thing I'm going to highlight is sexuality. <laughs> this is always the issue with women in the media. They're always uh, sexualized, or not always, but uh, at least in the 90s, most of the times they were. In contrast to Seven of Nine from Star Trek Voyager, who is very sexualized with her tight catsuit and her big breasts and small waist and wide hips, Actually, the Borg Queen's physical characteristics, they're not excessively feminine or sexualized. But what is interesting about her is that she is presented as overtly sexual in her behavior. And that is what Mia Consalvo said, actually. Her behavior is very sexual. For example, in First Contact, the Borg Queen famously tempts the android Data, who is a male cyborg, of course, to join her and to become her counterpart or equal by attaching a piece of organic skin to the entirely mechanical Data's arm so that he can feel her touching him while she makes all sorts of sexual innuendos. Um, yeah, that scene was quite uh, hectic for me to watch. Um, poor Data. And here, the queen does not use the lure of power to appeal to Data, as she does when tempting Seven of Nine to join her, but she rather uses her female sexuality as a means to achieve her ends, since Data is a male android. If Data was a female android, I think she might not have chosen the same, the same tactics to tempt him or her to join her. So this, again, uh, perpetuates the negative stereotype of women as temptress and seduct seductress. And in this way, the female cyborg becomes, and I quote from another author, inscribed with the sins of the flesh, even though cyborgs are supposedly meant to transcend the flesh. Right, so that is the first thing. The next thing is that from a third-way feminist and especially post-feminist perspective, actually the Borg Queen's expression of her sexuality may be seen to present a sexually empowered role model for women. So with this thing too, there are two sides to the story. Third-way feminists might argue that Captain Janeway's asexuality and her refusal to explore her sexuality actually confine her to archaic and outdated notions of female leadership, as she should not necessarily have to remain alone or sacrifice her femininity in order to be respected, a respected and authoritative captain. But once again, and this is my argument, one must consider the reasons why these sexualized or very sexual cyborgs like Seven of Nine and the Boar Queen were introduced into Star Trek. Even though they could present sexually empowered role models for women, which I don't agree with, actually, um, I take a stance against that. Ultimately, Seven was introduced to increase Voyeur's viewership by adding sex appeal to the show. Um, there is some academic backup for that statement. Um, Seven, it, and it is also widely known that, you know, Seven was introduced because the viewership was dropping. So they thought by introducing the sexy cyborg, the viewership will increase. And also, the all-powerful Borg Queen is ultimately punished for her sexuality because she dies at the hands of Data and Picard at the end of the First Contact film, who team up against her soon after seducing Data, and then she is used as an instrument for reinforcing Captain Picard's heroism, actually. He becomes a hero by killing her, 
So she's punished for expressing her sexuality towards Data. And she's the bad guy. So um, that just kind of reinforces it even more. And then uh, another interesting thing about the Borg Queen, and this is another problematic aspect of her. She also embodies uh, something called the monstrous feminine that Barbara Creed theorized uh, in <laughs> before 2000. I can't remember the exact date. So I will briefly compare the Borg Queen to the Queen in Aliens uh, to kind of explain what I mean by this. Like the xenomorphs in Alien, uh, so those are the aliens in Alien, the Borg also work according to a hive structure that is governed by one monstrous female queen. Okay, so in Aliens 2, um, Ellen Ripley has to face off against this really horrifying mother alien queen. In Star Trek Voyager, the Borg Queen does not only act as a constant obstacle for Captain Janeway, but she's also a direct competitor for Seven's loyalty. Just as Ripley is presented as the good mother in Aliens, contending against the alien queen, who represents the bad mother in Aliens, the caring, natural and good mother Captain Janeway is also constantly set against the monstrous, technological and bad mother embodied by the Borg Queen. And we see this especially in episodes like Dark Frontier, Unimatrix Zero and also in Endgame, the final Star Trek Voyager um, uh, episode that also celebrated its 20th anniversary last week, if I'm not mistaken. So like the alien queen who biologically gives birth to the alien eggs, the Borg queen, and this is really my argument, she can also be considered as Seven's biological mother because Seven was assimilated by the Borg when she was very young and therefore only knows life as a Borg. Okay, so there's that biological connection. Maybe I'm I'm stretching it a bit, but for me, that's a biological connection in science fiction. <laughs> um, so the dichotomy that is set again between the biological motherhood of the Boar Queen and the chosen motherhood of Janeway, who can also be read as Seven's adoptive mother, this suggests not only that monstrosity is unmistakably female, and explicitly identified with motherhood, like it is the case with the alien queen, but also that women's pairing with technology creates such a cyborg monstrosity. So that's quite problematic, actually. Um, it suggests that when women actually, actually synthesize with technology, they become monsters, <laughs> which is very problematic. The construction of the Borg Queen as a monstrous mother therefore further undermines her transgressive potential because it disregards women's positive coupling with technology for a cyborg abomination. Right, so the final aspect of the Borg Queen that I will briefly touch on is the idea of embodiment and disembodiment. Now, this is something I've been exploring for the past few episodes <laughs> regarding cyborgs. So you can listen to the episodes on Ghost in the Shell and also on the episode of Seven of Nine in Star Trek Voyager. So the Borg Queen as a female cyborg in the true 90s sense encourages the view that the female body should be discarded, that the body isn't important. Now I will explain. 
In the two-part Voyager episode called Unimatrix Zero, the Borg Queen expresses this embodiment as the epitome of perfection. She actually says that. She says, this embody is the epitome of perfection. According to Mia Consalvo, the Borg take the highly problematic Cartesian mind-body split that suggests that the mind and body function separately, which presents the opposite of Catherine Hales's notion of the mind-body, which means that the body influences the mind and the mind influences the body. It takes it to its logical conclusion by emphasizing the elevation of the collective mind and disregarding Borg bodies. So for the Borg, the collective, the hive mind, is much more important than the bodies of the drones. They are seen as things that can simply be discarded. I remember in the episode called The Omega Particle in Star Trek Voyager, that's one of my favorite Voyager episodes, actually. Oh, it's not The Omega Particle, The Omega Directive. That's the episode's name. Seven of Nine, uh, Captain Janeway said, you know, there's this really dangerous particle called Omega, and the Borg were experimenting with it. And then... Seven of Nine tells Janeway, no, we shouldn't destroy Omega, we should harness it and we should try to control it because it's this really amazing energy source. And then Captain Janeway asks Seven, um, Seven, how many Borg drones died or how many were discarded in this experiment? And then Seven says some ridiculous number, something like one billion or one million I think it was 1 billion Borg drones sacrificed or died in experimenting with the Omega particle. And then Janeway is like, well, yeah, duh, that's why we need to destroy it. And then Seven's like, no, that's irrelevant. <laughs> How many drones died for that? Um, and I thought that is so interesting because it really confirms what Mia Consalvo says here, that the Borg really emphasize the collective mind and they dis discard or disregard Borg bodies. Actually interesting is that Borg drones do not even register as individual entities when a Borg ship is scanned by another ship, which really further reveals that, that they are a collective and they are one and that even in terms of scanning <laughs> equipment, uh, their individuality is completely destroyed. Then also, since the Borg Queen's head detaches from her body, she could also theoretically be placed on the body of a male drone, and it would be irrelevant to her rule, since it is, after all, her mind that governs the collective and not her body. Okay, then another detail that further supports the Borg Queen's status as a disembodied entity, and something that Mia Consalvo and other literature on the Borg Queen fail to point out, is that there have been two Borg queens in the Star Trek universe to date. Okay, excluding uh, Star Trek Picard when Seven briefly becomes a Borg queen. Now, I have been mulling over this for a very long time, and I've looked at blogs and fan sites and things to try and figure out how this could be. Is it the same Borg queen that we see in Star Trek First Contact and Star Trek Voyager because, well, first of all, they're played by two different actresses, but they both look quite similar. So I, I don't think, I think that, yeah, I don't think that means anything. 
But one queen dies at the hand of Captain Picard on star date 2063 in Star Trek First Contact. And then the other dies at the hands of Captain Janeway on star date 2378 in the final episode of Star Trek Voyager. Okay, so maybe you guys can let me know. Are there then two Borg queens? Have there been two? Is it a case of when the one Borg queen dies that another just takes her place? Why is it always a female or a woman that takes her place? The place of the next Borg queen. And then there's also, again, ask the questions about consciousnesses. Does it need to be a female consciousness that rules the collective? Why is it a queen, not a Borg king? All of these kind of questions came to mind when I realized that actually both Borg queens die at the hands of two different Starfleet captains. Actually, on the Star Trek forums, no one is certain <laughs> whether it was this detail is simply a plot error or whether it's the same Borg queen that is killed by both Captain Picard and Captain Janeway, or whether there are two Borg queens and the hive mind simply chooses a new queen when the body of the other dies. I think in Star Trek Picard, it shed a little bit of light on this because there's that one scene where Seven of Nine becomes the Borg queen for a while and um, she just kind of governs the drones on the ship that is called the artifact for a while. So she briefly becomes the queen, but I don't know if she can uh, hear. Yeah, I can't remember the details of that event. I need to watch Star Trek Picard again. But anyway, this is quite interesting. Maybe I can get some feedback on other people's opinion on this thing. But anyway, uh, moving on with the discussion, in light of the latter theory, which seems to offer a better explanation for these two events. So that is the theory that... Um, the hive mind just chooses a new queen when the body of the other one dies. Um, the body of the Borg queen is once again shown to be irrelevant, as it is her consciousness that governs the collective and not her body. This is to say that when one Borg queen's body's, one Borg queen body dies, another body is simply chosen to contain the queen. But then what I found interesting is that Janeway seems to be more aware of the Queen's disembodied existence than Captain Picard, because at the end of Star Trek First Contact, Picard kills the Borg Queen's body, but Janeway delivers a fatal blow to the Borg by infecting the Queen's mind, which I found quite fascinating, um, because if the Borg Queen is simply a consciousness that governs the collective that can switch between bodies, then infecting her mind is much more of a lethal blow. But yeah, despite all of this, nevertheless, for Mia Consalvo, the Borg and their Queen, scorn of bodily flesh, singles contempt for the feminine traditionally associated with the body instead of the mind. So that is what makes that a little bit problematic too. The Borg Queen's status as a disembodied entity therefore allows for her to transcend her essentialized female body and, as seen with the case of her multiple deaths, provides her the prospect of immortality. It seems quite contradictory, though, that despite being able to transcend the body, the Queen rather reinscribes it with essentialist no notions of femininity through the blatant use of her sexuality to achieve her ends. So apparently her body is not important at all. It can die and just 
she can just transfer into the consciousness of another body. But still, she uses this very body that she discards so much or that she really doesn't care about to use her to achieve her ends. So I thought that's quite contradictory. So this again, of course, is another reason why I'm skeptical of a third wave feminist reading of the Boar Queen as a positive sexually empowered version of femininity because this uh, sexuality that she uses makes her essentialist, makes her, essentializes her, says that the body is, um, all female bodies are sexual by nature and tempting by nature, which is very problematic. So yes, that is the discussion for today on the Borg Queen. I hope that you found it informative and interesting and that you've gained some new insights about her. Despite all her problems, I still really love this character. I think she's very fascinating and interesting and I really like her. I feel sorry for her when she dies at the end of Star Trek Picard, even though she's the bad guy. And I also kind of feel sorry for her when Captain Janeway kills her too, because I, I still like the Queen. So yes, anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Please feel free to drop comments for me or let me know what you think or even requests if there's anything specific you would like me to discuss. Next week, I have a really special episode in store. I'm going to meet with my good friend Courtney Tink again, and we're going to be talking about the new Cruella film. So I hope you look forward to that. And until next week, when we meet again, live long and prosper, and resistance is futile, and I hope you have a good week ahead. Thank you. This is the Sci-Fi Feminist signing off. Bye-bye. This show is brought to you by Sweet Media. Computer. List other available Holosuite media programs. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Random Trek Review, a Star Trek Review Podcast. Okay, yeah, I mean, I think that we've talked about Nurse Chapel before, and I think that, yeah, I mean, it's Majel, right? We we love Majel, which she can't really do wrong, so uh, I think that's... That... Well, yes, she can. <laughs> Tried to slip that by you. But maybe not, maybe not during this era. But she certainly can do. Wrong. Yeah, Christine Chapel couldn't do wrong. Loxwana, uh, yeah, she can definitely spoil some episodes for sure. Loading Holosuite Preview Program Four: The Expanse, an Enterprise podcast. You guys are making some great selling points for Savar, <laughs> but I still don't like him. So uh, we're just we're just gonna have to agree disagree and move on because uh, we have other captains to discuss. Uh, so I'm not going to go there. Um, but we are now up on our next captain, my favorite captain, um, Captain Cisco. All right. And, uh, of course, we see him in his opening uh, pilot episode on board the Saratoga and uh, fighting Picard at Wolf 359 when Picard is Lacutus, of course. Which was not an inside job, no matter what anybody says. <laughs> <laughs> Computer, deactivate Holosuite.